The Gospel of John chapter 8, if you'll find it with me this morning. The Gospel of John chapter 8, while you're turning there, let me just mention a couple of things by way of announcement. We have several guests with us this morning. We thank you for being here. Trust the Lord to bless you in the service. Uh, see Brother Tony Hess is with us. And uh, he came thinking he was going to see two more grandbabies, but they're not cooperating right yet. We ready though, aren't we, Sister Rebecca? We ready. Lord, help this woman. Spent a couple of days in the hospital, thought we was going to have them. Doctor said no, sent you home. So here we are. But pray for Sister Rebecca, have these babies pretty soon. And uh, Brother Tony's headed back to Crimea, Lord willing, in about a month to visit over there, the church there. So pray for him. But do pray for Sister Rebecca. I know she'd love to have these, have these babies for sure. Good to have Brother Jimmy and Sister Samantha and all the little Jacksons. As well, and good to have them with us uh, this morning as well. I mentioned to you Wednesday night, by the way, that we sold the bunch. We, we had this big coach bus we didn't use much. Brother Billy took it up to South Carolina and was able to sell that bus this week. Praise the Lord for that. And I uh, got enough money out of that, so what we did is we split it among all of the field reps for Victory Baptist Press. And uh, this week we'll all give them $2,000 out of that, and just as a little love offering. So everybody's for that, say Amen. It's a wonderful thing. Alyssa Sanders is getting married um, sometime this year. I don't know when. But uh, bridal shower next Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. I'm looking for her. Is she in here? She's in the nursery. Is she registered anywhere? Anything? Amazon. Amazon. Everybody's registered at Amazon. You can buy a house at Amazon, I guess. But anyway, Alyssa Sanders... I would have, how do you find it? What do you do? Just type in Alyssa Sanders on Amazon? That's what you do. Bridal registry and you find her on there and they know where she's. Okay. All right. So, so Alyssa Sanders, that's next Sunday at 3 o'clock. However you all do that, that's fine. Victory Baptist School of Ministry starts Thursday, Thursday night. If you have not registered and planned to do, there are registration cards in the back. Appreciate you doing that. The Gospel of John chapter number 8. Gospel of John chapter number 8. We're going through the Gospel of John on Sunday morning, verse by verse, section by section. And in John chapter 8, John has captured a conversation between the Lord and his enemies. They are in the temple area. It's very shortly after uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a conversation that the other Gospel writers do not include in their Gospels. And of course, we don't have every conversation that took place between the Lord and other people, and even between the Lord and his enemies. There were surely many encounters, many conversations, many sermons. And so the conversation that we have in John chapter 8 could have been a representative conversation. And by that I mean it is a real actual conversation, but it is likely that conversations like this took place a great number of times, especially during these last six months, and John is recording this one in particular. The Lord has come back to the temple right after the Feast of the Tabernacles, and he is teaching in the courtyard, and a group of Pharisees come up to him, and they challenge him on his claims. They are seeking to discredit him. These men have already met in their secret chambers. They have already determined that, that the end is going to be his death, and they consider him a blasphemer, a blasphemer, and blasphemy was punishable by death. 
I thought if um, there, there are certain uh, Islamic countries that if you were to travel to today and blaspheme the prophet Muhammad, they would put you to death. It is a crime to blaspheme Muhammad in certain countries. Now here in America, I call him a, 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 a pervert, a pedophile, I call him anything I want to, and we have freedom of speech, but there are certain places that, that you do not. Well, that same religious zealotry existed among the Jews. If you were to claim that you were God, that you were Jehovah, or that you were equal with God, that would be blasphemy to them. And the Pharisees knew that Jesus made these claims, and it was this blasphemy. What they considered blasphemy was what stirred up their hatred against him. Two, when you add that he does not respect their authority, he doesn't bow down to all of their traditions and their rules, he's more popular than all of the other, more popular with the people than they are, then that just adds fuel to the fire. And so that's the setting, that's the, the atmosphere of John chapter 8. In this dialogue, there are 10 interruptions. 10 times the people respond back to him with either a question or an, an objection. And so there's a very, very back and forth, and it's a very long passage. I, I mentioned that last week, and it's challenging to break this down into preachable sections. You, you can't preach 50 verses in one sitting, and we'll be here till, till, till long past due time. We, we, you, you have to break it down. And the most difficult part of preaching this message is not in knowing what to say, but in what to leave out, what, what, what to cut out and, and not to emphasize. Last week, we looked at one statement that Jesus made, he shall die in your sins. But there's so much more here to consider. And so the biggest challenge has been knowing what to preach and how to package it, if you may. Hermeneutics is the science of studying the scripture. And when you study the scripture, there are certain keys. There are certain rules that, that you follow. One of those is the key of keywords, keywords. When you look at a passage of scripture, you look for words that are repeated or unique words, some words that stand out. Uh, transitional words, if you could find therefores or wherefores, and that's a marker uh, in in that passage. And so you look for words that, that might would unlock the passage. I've read this passage over and over and over in the last several weeks. Uh, there is a word, the word father. The word father in chapter eight shows up 21 times. In this passage, Jesus says that God is my father. He's not your father. Amen. The devil is your father. I mean, there's a doctrine of fatherhood in this chapter. And I and I thought, well, well, we'll just preach on the doctrine of the fatherhood, everything that he says about father. There's another word, the word free. Free, if the son make you free, you are free indeed. He uses the word free quite frequently. And so there is a doctrine of freedom that you can find in this passage. But as I read the passage this week, there was another word that stood out to me. And it's mentioned seven times in this passage that I found it. Now I'm going to use that one word, no outline, no outline. I'm just going to use that word as the word that we're going to hang our thoughts upon for this morning. And it is the little word, if. If. Seven times Jesus says, if. 
Now that's a little word. It's a conditional word. It, it, it says that, that one thing will happen as a condition of another thing happening. If one thing happens, then be assured that the other thing's going to happen. If one thing is true, then the other thing is either true or not true, depending on whether it's a positive or a negative. In the word if, it presents an unchangeable truth. The terms are non-negotiable. If this thing happens, then something else will happen as a result, and you can't change that. Seven times Jesus says, if. So this morning, I want to just look at those seven statements that Jesus makes when he says, if. The first one is found in verse number 19. Would you look at it with me? Then said they unto him, where is thy father? Jesus answered, ye neither know me nor my father. Here it is. If ye had known me, ye would have known my father also. The Pharisees have challenged Jesus on what they considered a legal technicality. Back in verse number 13, they had said, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. And they're referring to one of the laws of Moses that said that you couldn't bring an accusation, certainly not a conviction against a man, except before two or three witnesses. You could not accuse a man just on mere hearsay. It was determined at the mouth of of at least two witnesses. And the reason why is because men are liars. Even on the stand, men are liars and will perjure themselves. So you've got to have some verification. You have to have some witnesses to, to protect the innocent from false accusation. So they said to Jesus, your record is not true because you are, record, you are testifying of yourself. You can't be your own witness. And Jesus answers that two ways. He says in verse number 14, he says, though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. In other words, I do bear witness of myself, but my witness is true because I am true. I only tell the truth. I don't need confirmation. I am my own validation. So I bear record of myself, but my record counts because my record is true. The second way he answers that is in verse number 18. I am one that bear witness of myself. You want somebody else? Well, the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. I don't need a second witness because my Father bears witness of me and he doesn't need confirmation either. Right, right. And I think Jesus is specifically referring to his baptism when the voice came out of heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I'm gonna tell you, if the father speaks from heaven, you don't really need anybody else to confirm that. That's validation enough. But when Jesus brings up this subject of his father, the Pharisees jump on that and they say, where is thy father? It is believed that Joseph had died by this time, so they may be talking about Joseph as his father. You and I know that Joseph was not his father, so they would have been wrong on that account. But then they could be bringing up the, the rumor that floated around that Jesus was born out of wedlock. Uh, the rumor was that Joseph and Mary 
was not married. And of course, we know Jesus was born of a virgin, but the lie had spread that Joseph and Mary had had relationships before Jesus was born and that Jesus was actually an illegitimate child. And so when the Pharisees are eager to talk about Jesus' father, they're glad to talk about that because they know that he claimed God as his father. They believe they could refute that claim by making the issue about his earthly father. And that sets up this first statement in verse number 19. He says, ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. You know a lot about God, but you don't know God. For all of your religion, it has not brought you into a relationship with the father. He's basically telling them that if God walked up on the street and slapped you in the face, you wouldn't know that it was God. Now, if you knew me, you would know the Father. But you can't know him without knowing me. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said that if you honor the Father, you'd honor me. To his disciples, Jesus had said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But to men who prided themselves in their piety and their rules and their religion, Jesus says, you don't know him. Did you know that men can read the Bible and come no closer to God? That men can come to church and get no closer to God? That men can, can, can live a rigid lifestyle of piety and not come any closer to God? But if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father. You talk about him all that you want to, but without Jesus, you have information, but you have no relationship. That's what he says. If you, if, you, if you knew me, you'd know the Father. I am, um, sometimes, every once in a while, somebody will come along and, and say some nice things about God and the Bible and Christianity. And we're quick to jump on the bandwagon as if, if you say something nice about God, that makes you a Christian. You know not everybody who talks nice about Christianity is actually a Christian. Politicians. Politicians. They love to talk about God and Jesus and church and, and the Bible because they want the evangelical vote. But just because you say something nice about Jesus doesn't mean that you are a Christian. And I think that as Christians, you and I ought to have discernment. discernment. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. A few years ago, there was a psychologist in Canada that took a very public stance against transgenderism. He became a public voice for conservative values. His name is Jordan Peterson. How many of you know that name? Best-selling author, wrote a book, 12 Rules for Life. Good book, read the book. And, and, and because he's a darling of the conservatives and on the talk shows, and he, he says good things about morals and ethics and, and takes the right stand against social justice and all of that, then many Christians believe that he is a bona fide Christian. But I want to tell you something. Being a conservative doesn't make you a Christian. Amen. Taking a stand against transgenderism, though that's a wonderful thing, that doesn't make you, do you understand? That doesn't make you a Christian. 
So, so he says a lot of good things, things that we like to hear. But here's what you'll never hear. You'll never hear him confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He does not view Christ dying on the cross for our sins, but he sees Jesus as a representative of how we should die. When he talks about Jesus bearing the sins of the world, what he means is that Jesus modeled the way that everybody should bear the sins of the world. He doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ and triumph over death and the grave, but he sees it as an example of how all of us are to be reborn as our self dies and we're transformed into a new image. He says that what saves us is not our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus, but our willingness to learn from what we do not know. I'm not trying, trying to bash him. He says a lot of good things. He takes a good stand against some social issues, but that does not make you a Christian. When it comes to the Bible and when it comes to Jesus, I think he is intentionally obtuse because his audience largely is Christianity. And, 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 and a lot of Christians jump on the bandwagon. And, and boy, he's a conservative and we're desperate for somebody to, to speak out with some knowledge on, on issues that we care for. But I don't care how conservative you are. I don't care what stance that you take. I want to tell you, that's not the benchmark of Christianity. So what's the benchmark? If he had known me, known me, then you would have known the Father. Now there's a second if, he says. Look here, it's found in verse 24. Look at it. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. Watch this. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now, now, we talked about that last week, and so I, I won't spend any time here. But I said that death is a sure thing for every one of us. We, we, um, we, we go to the doctor, we get a bad report card, and he says, something wrong with you? And so we determine, I, 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 I'm going I'm to change my diet, and I'm going to get off sugar, and, and I'm going to quit Dr. Peppers and Snicker bars and Krispy Kreme, and I'm going to start exercising, and I'm going to start taking vitamins. And that's wonderful. You should do all of those things. But I'm going to tell you something. You take every vitamin that you can stand to take. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to die. Right? right. You, you, you're going to die. We, we try to extend it as long as we can. And I would do the exact same thing. But when it's all over, you are going to die. You ain't got a choice in that. You do have a choice in how you die. Revelation 14, now, now watch this. Revelation 14 and verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Well, that sounds a lot better to me than dying in my sin. It's dying in the Lord. You can't help that you are a sinner because you were born as a sinner. But sometime before you get to death, you ought to decide I'm not gonna die as a sinner. Not, not going to die in my sin. 47 years ago, I placed my trust in Jesus Christ as a seven-year-old boy, and when I got saved, he placed me 
in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things passed away. Behold, all things are brand new. And when the Father looks at me, he doesn't see me in my sin. He sees me in the Son. Somebody ought to say amen right there. So when I die, I will die in the Lord. In the Lord. Jesus said, if you don't believe in him, you die in your sins. That's what he said. The Bible's full of people that got so close to heaven, died and went to hell. And the Bible's full of people that got so close to hell, but died and went to heaven. Judas Iscariot kissed the door of heaven and died and went to hell. Thief on the cross, minutes away from an eternity in torments, one glance at the Savior made it into paradise. If ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sin. That's an irrevocable truth. It's non-negotiable. There's nothing you can do to change that. It is not conditional. It's not dependent upon any circumstances. If this happens, then this other thing will surely happen. If you die in your sins, if you believe not that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. Look at this third one. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, Jesus says to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now verse 30, the verse before says that many believed on him. So there were some in that crowd who listened and they were persuaded in their hearts that Jesus was the Christ. Now they don't know anything about the death, burial, and resurrection yet. But from what they've heard, from what they've seen, they're convinced he's the Messiah. His words ring true. They know that he has divine power that comes from God. That witness is true to their heart. And maybe they're hesitant to voice that like Nicodemus because of the ire and the wrath of the Pharisees. But, but, but they believe, but they believe. But here's your problem. Not everybody who believes continues. There are some who believe in the heart, but they never put any action to their belief. So Jesus turns to those Jews who in their heart, in their mind, they believe. They believe everything that he's saying. And he says, all right, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. In other words, belief demands evidence. The proof that you are a true disciple is if you continue in his word. That's the evidence of true disciple. It argues against what you and I would call mere Christianity. That there's got to be some evidence. The test of your professed faith is do you continue in Christ? It's not in what you say. It's in how you live. Now it's interesting to me. If you, if you read this passage, that when Jesus says that, they don't engage him on that. The Pharisees, they, they're going to move on to another subject. So Jesus doesn't develop that thought here. However, John, the apostle, is the one that's recording this some years later. And John gets to his epistle, 1 John, and he does develop the thought. It's almost as if John says... Jesus didn't elaborate it on then, but I'm going to elaborate it on right now. I, I, I'm going, I'm going to, I, I want to say some more about that. So I want you to hold your finger right here, and I want you to go to 1 John chapter 2. 
1 John chapter 2. They didn't ask any follow-up questions and, and they changed the subject, but, but John picks it up here and he, said, he says, I, I, I want to elaborate on what Jesus said. So look at 1 John 2 and look at verse number 19. This is what John said. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You know, sometimes I think, I think that sometimes we read the Bible and it's a little bit stout and, and we're just not really sure how to take that. Huh? You know, that don't really jive with everything I believe and I, I'm, just, I'm just not sure if I need to put that in another dispensation or what I need to do with that verse. Are, are y'all with me? Because sometimes you can read the Bible and it just contradicts everything that you believe. I, I'm going to tell you, that, that's a tough verse. John, John was of the impression that if you were a disciple of Jesus Christ, you would just stick. That, that was his impression. I'm thinking of Hebrews 10, I think it's 28 or 38, or uh, the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in them. That, that's a tight verse, isn't it? And here's, here's what I think. I think that we are so used to making excuses for lost people because they prayed a prayer that sometimes we read the Bible and it's just a little bit too strong for us. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm just reading the Bible is all I'm doing. And here's the thing, none of us can see into the heart of another man, can we? I don't know if you're saved or if you're lost, I don't know. But we can look at the fruit of another man's life and have an in good indication of whether you are true or not. And the Bible doesn't say, hereby we know that you are my disciple if you prayed the prayer. Hereby we know you are my disciple if you like gospel songs. Hereby we know you are my disciple if you come to church on Sunday night. No, no, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. You're in 1 John 2, look at verse four. He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. If you get offended anybody, get offended at John. He one wrote it. That's what John said. I, I doubt, I doubt we could have John for a revival. Because I don't think any of us be standing by the end of the week. We might could have him for a two-day meeting. I don't think we could stand him for a week. Because John didn't have any room for a disobedient Christian. John would say that faith and obedience are inseparable. Yeah. Second, second John, second John, second John. Second John, verse nine. This is John, this is John, not me. This is John. Whosoever transgresses and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. I, I, I believe a believer can backslide, don't you? I, I don't believe Christians are perfect. I, I believe a Christian can even get out of church. But I'm going to tell you, they have no evidence that they belong to God. 
You can be saved and not be a disciple of Christ. You could have placed your faith in Christ and be saved and have not continued on with him, but you're not his disciple. You have no right to call yourself a disciple of God and you have no right to call yourself a Christian. Now I want to make it clear here real quick. Continuing in the faith does not save you. A man is not saved because he continues. He continues because he is saved. Right? If you go back there to the nursery, pick up one of them kids and take one of them kids and one of them kids start laughing. He's laughing because he's happy. Right? Laughing is a sign that he's happy. But laughing doesn't make him happy. It's an indication he already is happy. He's not happy because he's laughing. He's laughing because he's happy. You, you're not a Christian because you obey his commandments. You obey his commandments because you're a Christian. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Come back to John 8. Let me show you another one. I don't know what number this is, but there's seven of them. Look at verse 36. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Now, now Jesus brings up the subject of freedom all the way back in verse 31. And he tells them that true freedom is found only in him. By the way, I cherish freedom. I thank God that I live in America and the freedoms that we enjoy. I'm very passionate about the amendments of the Constitution. I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate about freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom to bear arms. And I am passionate about those things, but most people live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, but they're not free. Because Jesus talking about a different kind of freedom. He says in verse number 31, he, or verse number 32, he says, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The Jews would have said we have the truth, but they don't have it in their heart. It's not enough to know the truth, but you got, or to have the truth, you have to know the truth. Verse 33, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free. Isn't it interesting that people that are in bondage don't realize they're in bondage? Jesus says, if you know the truth, it'll make you free. They say, we already are free. We're not in bondage to any man. Can you imagine a preacher getting up in America and say, I tell you the thing that America needs, America needs is more freedom. Well, you say, you're crazy. We got more freedom than most countries in the world. You have plenty of freedom. But that's because Jesus talking about a different kind of freedom. Look, look, look. He says, he says, they said in verse 33, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. You've got to be kidding me. Do, do you remember Pharaoh? Egypt? Do, do you remember hard taskmasters, bitter life? Making bricks out of straw? What would you call that? Do you remember Babylon? What about Rome? In fact, right now, Rome is, is in charge. You have some freedom, but you don't have total self-autonomy. 
You, you are not free. When you have to pay taxes to a foreign invader, you're not free. And that's what they had to do. And as they say, we've never been in bondage to any man. But Jesus is not talking about bondage as a nation. Politically, he's not talking about political freedom. You're not free. He says in verse 34, he says, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. There is a greater bondage than a national bondage. In fact, you can be in bondage to your own government. I, I'm not going to get political on this, but there's a lot of Americans that are slaves to their government. You own your house outright, but don't pay your property taxes for a couple of years. We'll see who really owns your house, right? I, I'm not going to get political. I could. But, 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 but we have a bigger problem than oppressive government. The bigger problem is oppressive sin. There are a lot of people that live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, but they are in bondage to sin. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there are people that understand that the alcohol is absolutely ruining their life and destroying their marriage and they tried to quit and they tried to quit and they tried to quit and they cannot quit because they are a slave to that bottle. There are men, there are men right now that, 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 that are hooked on some drug and they've tried to quit and they've tried to come clean. They've tried to turn over a new life because they know this road is a dead end and they cannot quit because they're a slave to that. There are men who are hooked on pornography and they try to quit and they try to quit and they try to quit, but they are a slave to it. It's amazing what we are addicted to. Bondage to sin. It doesn't even have to be sin. There, there's people that are in bondage to a screen. Can't get off of it. Check your phone 47 times a minute, an hour. Constant Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, screens, and see if somebody tweeted me or beeped me or, or whatever they did. And, and, and just constant, just constant, constant. You know what that's called? That's called an addiction. I wish y'all wanted me to, I would. You, you know, there, there's people that are in bondage to money. Money can be an obsession. Success, fame, that can be an obsession. And if any of those things consume your life, you're not free. So how do you get free? If the son, therefore, shall make you free. He shall be free. Isn't it good to be free? Free of pride. Free of anger. Free of bitterness. Free of lust. To know that those things do not control our life, that we are not in bondage to any sin. Oh, we sin because we voluntarily place ourselves under that. But to know that sin itself has no power over us. The lost man has no power to break sin in his life. But sin has no power over the life of a saved man. Free from sin and free from the curse and free from the law and free from condemnation. I'm glad that when I'm in Jesus Christ, I am. Free indeed. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. If the Son 
If the Son make you free, you're free indeed. Can I show you another one in this text? Look at verse 39. Then answered and said they unto him, Abraham our father, is our father, Jesus saith unto him, if ye were Abraham's children, he would do the works of Abraham. Now, I don't believe that there is anybody here who believes they're getting to heaven by their last name. You may have a last name that opens doors for you, but you probably don't believe that your last name is going to open the door of heaven for you, right? right. You, you don't think that your last name is whether it's Smith or Jones or, or Petty or whatever it might be. You, you don't think that name is going to get you into heaven. Right. And you don't really believe that you're going to get to heaven because you're an American right. or because of your ancestry. But that's exactly what the Jews believe. They believed that they had spiritual access to God simply by mere fact that Abraham was their father. They were Israelites. Abraham is our father, and us being Jews, that is our ticket to heaven. We are the children of God because we are the sons of Abraham. In fact, one rabbi was known to say that Abraham sits beside the gates of hell and does not permit any wicked Israelite to enter in. Even the worst of the Israelites don't get into hell because he's an Israelite. And Jesus shatters that false security. He says being the physical seed of Abraham is not the same as being the spiritual seed of Abraham. Back in verse 33 again, he said, they said, we be Abraham's seed. See how much stock they put in their physical ancestry? Abraham's seed. Well, verse 37 Jesus says, I know that you're Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. Jehovah God promised Abraham a seed as numbers as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And they were proud that they could prove their ancestry. And Jesus concedes that it is true. You are Abraham physically, but you don't act like you belong to Abraham. You don't act like you're Abraham. You've got his bloodline, but it doesn't mean anything because you don't do the works of Abraham. He says in verse 39, if Abraham, Abraham's children, not physically, spiritually, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So I just sat and I went back to Abraham and I thought, what was the works of Abraham? What, what did Abraham do? Abraham, by faith, saw ahead to Jesus' day, but they rejected him. That's right. Abraham had a very dim picture, but he believed that. They had full revelation. They didn't believe that. Abraham believed God to have a son, to offer that son on the altar, but Jesus says, you're not like Abraham. You don't do anything that Abraham does. I mean, when a messenger from heaven in Genesis chapter 18 is it, when a messenger from heaven came and sat down with Abraham and talked to him and said they have a son, I believe that that was Jesus himself and he believed that messenger and Jesus said the messenger from heaven is called and you don't believe him? You're, you're seeking to kill me. Abraham didn't do that. Abraham was the friend of God. You're not the friend of me. Abraham saw my dad rejoicing. You don't do that. You're not like Abraham's children. In fact, in verse 56, I, I, I'm trying to hurry. Verse 56, 
He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus saith unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. You know what Jesus just said? Jesus said, I knew Abraham. That's what he said. Before Abraham got here, he said, I was here, and I, met, I believe that Jesus met with Abraham in the form of a Christophany, and he knew Abraham, and he said, I'm telling you, you are nothing like Abraham. Right. <laughs> why, why would you call Abraham your father? You ain't nothing like him. Right. <laughs> why do people insist on calling God their father? Well, they ain't nothing like him. If nothing in your life is God-like, he may not be your father. How can it be said that you're God's child if you don't do the works of God? Jesus said if you were Abraham's children spiritually, you'd do the works of Abraham. Look at verse 42. Here, here's another one. Verse 42. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, he would love me. Hmm. There, there's, a, uh, there's a false doctrine people latch on to. It's called the universal fatherhood of God. That God's the father of all men. We are all God's children. That's just not true. God is our creator. But he's not all of our fathers. These unbelievers have just said in the previous verse, if you look in verse 41, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. They're claiming that God is their father. And Jesus said, well, there is a litmus test for that. And the litmus test is, do you love me? It's so easy to talk about God. Say, so how you know God? But the test is, do you love me? Jesus. How much did you think of him this week? How much is he on your mind? How much do you think about him? How much of your daily living revolves around Jesus Christ? I'm going to tell you something. When God saved me, he put deep down in my heart a love for Jesus Christ. He becomes the chief passion of the heart. And you can't help but love him because he loved us so much. He says, he says, he says, he says, he says, listen, he said, if God were your father, he would love me. Here's the last one. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Verse 46, which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Here's religious people who are depending on the morality of their ancestry to get them to heaven. They claim they are the children of Abraham. They don't act anything like Abraham. They claim that God is their father, though they don't love the Lord Jesus. And Jesus has been driving the sword of truth deep into the heart and they have an objection to everything. In fact, in verse 44, he even goes so far as to tell them that your real father is the devil. They're not going to repent. They're not going to confess Christ. They're going to double down on their unbelief until they have succeeded in having him crucified. And Jesus said, why don't you believe me? 
I, I speak the truth to you, but the truth cannot penetrate into your hearts. Why not? Why not? In verse 47, he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. If you were truly a child of God, you would hear his words. See, your relationship with the Father, how you know God is your Father, is told by how you love Jesus and by how you hear His Word. One of the proofs of sonship is that you love this book. You want to hear what God has to say. You can take these seven statements as confirmation that you know God. Are you anything like the Father? Do you love the Son? Do you have a desire to hear His Word? In verse 44, I've not looked at it. When Jesus tells them that you're of your Father, the devil, He's basically telling them you act more like the devil than you do God. He says you act just like Him. You have more in common with Satan than you do with God. Hmm. And there's church people that put on a big on big show on Sunday, but the rest of the week they live more like the devil than they do God. He says, the lusts of your father ye will do. He says, I can tell that the devil is your father because you do what the devil would want to do. You can't live by the lusts of Satan while claiming that God is your father. And I know that we all have a body of flesh and carnal desires and the old man resurrects. I know that. And I know that sometimes you succumb to the lust of the flesh, but when you do, something inside of you hurts. Something inside of you is grieved. But when people can sin with both hands with no conviction in their heart against it, they're saying, this is who my real father is. I'm glad I'm saved this morning, aren't you? And I'm glad for the transformation that took place in my life when I got saved. And when I read a passage like this, and these are some tough statements right here, but when I read a passage like this, it is assuring me that I am on the side of Jesus. I'm a long way from perfect. In fact, I'm not even a good Christian, but I can say with all of my heart that I pass all of these tests. I know that God is my Father. I know that I'm continuing in His Word. I know that I've been set free from sin. I know that I love the Son. I know that I welcome the truth of God's Word. That's my testimony. Is it your testimony this morning?